you have your Bibles, I hope you'll join me. 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off there in verse uh, number 1. And uh, as you're finding your place this morning, let me just mention a couple of things if I could. Number one, uh, nursery and preschool. I hope you're praying about helping us in our nursery and preschool departments. God is blessing us tremendously with little babies, and uh, we need some help uh, in there. Uh, taking care of them. So if you're able to do that, uh, let me encourage you to stop by the table and uh, get a, get one of those uh, packets and look at that and check that out and uh, pray about that. I'd greatly appreciate that. Number two, don't forget revival preparation in March. March 24th, John Reed's going to be right here. He's going to be preparing us uh, for our revival. That's going to start in May. May the 5th is when a revival starts, but our prep day starts on March the 24th, and uh, we'll be looking forward to that. And then last but certainly not least, 82 Spur, uh, the bridge work begins on March 18th. So just be mindful of that. I, I also want to say this. I'm so grateful for our leaders uh, there in Atlanta under the Gold Dome. I am grateful for them passing the uh, law protecting babies. I'm so thankful for that. I think that, you know, you can curse the darkness and curse the darkness, but when we do something right, we need to make sure we're lighting a candle. So I'll say, good job, guys. Praise God for that. Uh, life begins at conception. We need to do everything we possibly can to help those babies get into the world, and I thank God for George. This is one of the reasons why I love living in the South right here is because there's some folks in leadership that has morals, values, and I thank God for that. Good job. Could we just thank uh, our senators and all those? Thank you so much. In a world that's absolutely falling apart, we need one voice crying in the wilderness, and that's a good voice that's crying right there. To God be the glory for that. I also want to praise uh, the Senate and the House there in the gold, under the gold dome for uh, passing the Tebow bill protecting homeschoolers. I'm grateful for that as well, and I'm uh, very thankful that uh, that, is, that passed. And I'm very thankful for that. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You'll recall where we uh, were last week. We, we actually ended, Paul says, I'm showing you a more excellent way. And the word show there in uh, verse 31 of chapter 12 was, is a present tense verb. He says, I'm presently showing you a better way. And remember, the reason why he wanted them to see a better way is because the church at Corinth had gift envy. Remember what gift envy was? Uh, they were looking at each other going, man, I wish I had your gift. And, uh, and they were suffering from that. It was splintering the church. And then there was gift elevation they were suffering from where there were those in the church saying, my gift's better than yours. And if you want to be as good as I am, then you, you need to have the gift I have. And that was a real challenge, splintering the church. And then number three, there was gift expectation that just simply said, uh, you should be like me and you should exercise the gift that I have, whether you have it or not, you should do that. And Paul says, look, this is dividing the church. He says, so I'm showing you a better way. A better way is what I'm showing you. Now, we had to recall where Paul was at. If he's showing them a better way, what's he doing? Uh, number one, we talked about how he was in Ephesus. He was on his third missionary journey. So we concluded last week that because Paul was on that third missionary journey, he was obeying. So the better way was obedience to the Great Commission. And he was obeying the Lord. Now, remember where he's at. He's in Ephesus. 
So what's so important about Ephesus? Like Corinth, Ephesus was a major key city. It was an economic city. It was probably the economic center of what was then the known world. And as he was there, we have to remember there was probably about some estimations or a quarter of a million people in Ephesus. And they were coming from all different areas, just like Corinth. And so what Paul was saying is, if I'm going to obey the Great Commission, and if I'm going to be a missionary, then I'm going to have to love people. And if I'm going to show you a better way, the way that I'm going to show you is the way of love. And that's why he begins in chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 13 in verse 1, with that little conjunction, though. You see it there? Though, if you have your pens, pencil, lipstick, or mascara, I'm jumping right in this morning because of the length of the text, and I want to make sure I get it all in. I would underline that word, though, because that word, though, is a conjunction, and what he's doing is he's tying what he's about to say to what he's already said. So the church at Corinth knew very plainly where Paul was at. They knew he was there in Ephesus. They knew he was being a missionary, third missionary journey. They knew he was planting a church there. They knew that Ephesus had a quarter of a million people there. And they knew that if Paul was going to reach them, he had to bring a lot of different cultures together, much like uh, there at Corinth. Remember, when Paul wrote the letter back to Ephesus many years later, the one thing that he had to remind them of was unity. It's the same thing that Paul is trying to get the church at Corinth to understand. Unity. Paul approaches Corinth, however, from a different perspective. He approaches Corinth uh, to be unity by committing themselves greater to Jesus Christ. Be fully committed to God, and then there'll be unity in the church. Because if you love God with all your heart and understand how God loved you with all his heart, there'll be a natural outpouring of love that goes out from you. The problem with the church at Corinth was just simply this. They were allowing their spiritual gifts to edify themselves instead of edifying the body of Christ. And so in that edification of self-edification and selflessness, or excuse me, selfishness, what they were doing was they were lifting themselves up and neglecting Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say about Jesus? Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. So if we want to draw people to Jesus, we can't call attention to ourselves. We need to call attention to Jesus. Amen? So what Paul is doing here is he's saying, if you want to draw attention to Jesus, then the greatest thing you can do is exercise the gift of love. The gift of love is the greatest gift outside of anything except for your salvation. Salvation is the first and greatest gift, but the greatest gift outside of your salvation is love. And you should love one another. This was so intriguing to me that when you study the Word of God, you find even in John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, his overarching thing is to love one another. The greatest thing we can do here at Maysville Baptist Church is love each other. And the more we love Jesus will be the more we love each other. And when we study this passage of Scripture then, you see that Paul says, though. This conjunction then carries the idea when looked at its context as if it's saying, suppose if, or what if. And so notice what Paul says in this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. If you are able to stand, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Paul says, though, or suppose... 
Or what if? What if I spoke with the tongues of men and angels and have not love? I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I am of all faith, or though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And suppose I bestowed all my goods to feed the poor, and, and, uh, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemingly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never fails, but whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Where there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. You may be seated. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. So as Paul introduces this, he begins with this conjunction, suppose, or though, suppose, or what if. What if uh, I, I could speak with the tongue of men and angels? And then he goes into this rendition. In fact, Paul, when you look at the overarching uh, breakdown of this text, you see it breaks down into three natural categories. Let me show them to you this morning, and I hope you'll get a blessing from it. Number one, the first thing I want you to see what Paul does is Paul says, what love is not. What love is not. Paul says, love first of all is not a loud ruckus. That's verse number one. Verse number one, Paul says, love is not a loud ruckus. Follow with, you, with me in the word of God. He says, suppose I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity or love. I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. It's important to understand that in New Testament times, when someone was going to honor a false deity or a false god, if you would, what they would do is they would speak in an unknown language, a, a, a static chant, if you would. They would say things that no one could understand, not even the person that was speaking it. And then after they would do this rendition of speaking, if you would, there would be the smashing of gongs, these, these clanging of cymbals, the blaring of trumpets to call all attention to that false deity. I made mention of the oracle of Delphi a few weeks ago. This is something that she would do very uh, often. And she would call attention to the God of Apollo, if you would. And this was happening also in Corinth there at the temple of Aphrodite, and also at the temple of Asclepius. There would be these loud gongs, and it would be a rendition, if you would, of somebody trying to recognize this false deity or false god. 
And Paul comes alongside and he says, let's just suppose, if you would, that I come along and let's suppose I had all the languages of mankind. I knew if we brought it up to present day, French, Italian, English, if I understood all these different languages, and that's what he's referring to because in Corinth there are many, many different languages there. He says, suppose I could do this, number one. And he says, suppose not only I could do this of men, but also of angels. Suppose I could speak in a tongue that the angels speak. Suppose I spoke their language then, he says. And also suppose, if you would, as he goes forward in verse number one, he says, suppose I could do this and I do not have love. He says, if I do that and I speak without love, I'm nothing but those gang, those, those gongs that you hear in the streets every day. I'm nothing but those clanging of cymbals that you hear if I don't do it in love, even though I can do it, if I don't do it in love, I'm nothing but a bunch of ruckus. I'm just a loud ruckus. Let me bring it up to speed if I could. I could tell my wife with, with such passion and with such volume that I love her. I could yell, I love you, I love you. I got a megaphone at home, my kids do. I could put that megaphone, I could wake her up every day speaking that megaphone. I love you, I love you. But unless I demonstrate that love for her, I'm nothing more than a loud ruckus. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying love is not a loud ruckus. You don't say that you love God without doing that you love God. If you love God, you won't just say it. There'll be some action that goes along with it. Love is not a loud ruckus. Number two, in verse number two, he says love is not an attractive religion. Look and notice how it all fits together. Verse two, he says, and suppose I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love I am nothing here is the core essence of religion he says suppose if you would or think about this what if I was such an attractive religion that I heard from God there was no Bible there was no revelation if you would and I heard from him day in and day out and I communicated that to you my voice I only spoke of God's voice and he says suppose this not only that I had the voice of God but also suppose that I had all understanding and I understood all the mysteries of the universe I knew about space and time and continuum and I can just speak to those things and he says suppose also that I had not just a little bit of faith the faith of a mustard seed but suppose I had all the faith in the world suppose that so much faith that I could speak to a mountain and say I want you to move from there to over there and that mountain would obey suppose I had that kind of faith that would be an attractive religion I'd get a lot of followers Paul says a lot of people would come and follow me but if I do this without love he says I am nothing Dear friend, we've had false religions that exist today that have taken individuals out of the United States of America and put them in other parts of the world because they say that they have all this knowledge. They have all this understanding. They have all this prophecy, if you would. And then mix up some cyanide and some Kool-Aid and kill them all. There's nothing loving about that. Anything that says that they love you and takes the attention off of Jesus Christ and puts it on an individual is not love. It's heresy. Paul says love is not an attractive religion. And then he says, number three, love is not a humanitarian rationing. 
That's what he says in verse number 3. Love is not a humanitarian rationing. Follow. Notice how it all fits together again. Verse 3. He says, and suppose I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. And though I give my body to be, be burned and have not love, it profit me nothing. He's simply saying there that love is not a humanitarian rationing. Paul is saying that we as Christians can have all the resources in the world financially and we can give money to every need, uh, rather simple or complex, and even die in the process meeting those needs. He says, but if I don't have love, if I don't do it out of love, then I have nothing. So what is this love that he's talking about? He's talking about agape kind of love. He's talking about the kind of love that God demonstrated towards us by giving his son to die on Calvary's cross. What he's referring to here is the greatest gift of all. Remember, the greatest gift outside of salvation is love. But to possess love and to demonstrate love is to communicate the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying love communicates the gospel. It does not call attention to yourself. He says these gifts that you're having problems with, these gifts that you are abusing, they're all calling attention to yourself. He's going to deal with one specifically next week called the gift of tongues. He says you're just calling attention to yourself in such a capacity that people are being turned off for Jesus Christ. And we need to turn people on to Jesus Christ. So he says, love is not a loud ruckus. Loud is, love is not an attractive religion. Love is not a humanitarian rationing. Paul is saying that, listen to me, he's saying, I could have the voice of Michael Blue Blaine. I could influence the world like Pope Francis. And I could have the philanthropy of Bill Gates. But if I do not do it for the gospel's sake, I am absolutely nothing but a clanging cymbal. I'm a loud ruckus and I'm an attractive religion. And I'm a, human, I'm a humanitarian rationing, but people are not getting saved and they're dying and going to hell. Paul says this is not what love is. Number two. In verses four through seven, Paul switches gears. You'll note there is a natural, you'll notice a natural transition in verse four. And in verse four through seven, Paul shifts gears and he moves from what love is not into the area of what love is is what love is now what's fascinating about this is when you study this section of scripture he does use the term not n-o-t a lot here but he's not referring to what love is not he's referring to what love is and so have a paradigm when you look at this because really what paul is saying is when you look at love you can categorize it by saying five things and he does this with these verses let me show them to you if i could in verse number four, the first thing Paul says, what love is, is Paul says this. Paul is humble contentment. Humble contentment. That's verse four. Let's look at it together. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Paul simply says there, in dealing with love, being a humble contentment. Not being prideful, but being humble. And being content in that humility will manifest itself in five ways. Did you see it there? Number one, the first thing he said, it will manifest itself in patience. He says, love suffereth long. That's patience. 
He says, if you want to demonstrate what love is, and you want to have this humble contentment, then you will demonstrate patience towards other people. This Greek word, suffereth long, if you do a literal word-for-word translation, it is long-tempered. Long-tempered. And being long-tempered is just simply saying that you are patient with others. It has been said that patient is the mother of all virtues. Love's patience is the ability to be inconvenienced or even taken advantage of by a person over and over again and not yet get upset or angry. That's patience. Do you have anybody in your life that tests your patience? Don't say amen right there. (laughs) As a matter of fact, some of you thought about some people and even wrote it down in your notes. uh, uh, This person tries my patience. Did you know God put that person in your life so that you can exercise patience? The Bible tells us that what love is, love is a humble contentment, being content in the fact that you have patience that comes out of you. You think about this. Think about how long-suffering God was towards you. Should we not be long-suffering to others? Paul says love is patient. Number two, he says love is kind. That is to be useful, uh, to be serving others, to be gracious towards others. Uh, It gives us, it it means giving up a selfish, jealous, spiteful, and proud attitude. It's kind. Number three, he says, love envieth not. Here's another demonstration of a humble contentment. That is not being jealous. Not being jealous. It carries the idea of one being of understanding. You see, a loving person is never jealous. He is glad for the success of others, even if that success works against his own. Why? Because he understands that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Dear friend, the situation that you're in, the challenge that you may be in, maybe God's trying to teach you. Don't be jealous of that (coughs) co-worker, if you would, excuse me, (coughs) that got the promotion. Don't be jealous of that. Be happy for them. Don't be jealous of that family member. Be happy for them as to what God is doing in their their life. Love is not jealousy. In fact, he says, number four, it vaunteth not itself. Uh, Here's a word that carries the idea of someone uh, who doesn't brag about themselves. It vaunteth not itself. It doesn't brag on their own self. C.S. Lewis said this, bragging was the utmost sin. It is the epitome of pride, which is the root of all sin. He's simply saying here in in this uh, uh, phrase, vaunteth not itself, is that love is a modesty in which we have verbally, it's a verbal modesty. But then watch this, I love this, he takes it a step further. He says not only is it a verbal modesty, But he also says it's a mental modesty. Look at what he says last of all. He says it's not puffed up. The term puffed up here, Paul is speaking of this mental modesty. It's speaking against arrogance. He says love is not arrogant. It's not big-headed. It's love is big-hearted. And if you're big-hearted, there's this mental modesty that you have inside of you that carries the idea of humble contentment. People look at you and they say, you know what? Not only is that individual humble, but they're They're content with what they have. Dear friend, let me ask you a question in regards to your everyday living. Are you content with where God has you? Or is there jealousy inside of you? Is there arrogance inside of you? Is there a bragging about you? What Paul's saying is love is a humble contentment. 
We must examine ourselves and see, are we humbly content with where God has us? Number two, let me show you what love is too. The second thing, verse five, he says, second of all, love is heartfelt selflessness. Love is heartfelt selflessness. Did you see verse five? In verse five, he actually points out four things. As a demonstration of heartfelt selflessness, here's what it will manifest. Number one, it doesn't behave itself unseemingly. That is, it's mature in its manners. Uh, we were, Holly had a, I don't think he's in here. Make sure my son's not in here. Uh, I could tell you, I might not can say this next round, but uh, anyway. So <clears throat> my, uh, my, my, my 14-year-old, we, we took uh, uh, everybody to Cleveland, Georgia on Friday night to see Holly. Uh, Holly turned 19, and we wanted to uh, take her out to dinner. And so we all drove up there, me and the boys and, and Miriam. We drove up there to meet Holly. And uh, Alyssa, she was unable to be with us, but we're sitting there. And uh, we ate a little restaurant buffet style, and we fixed our food. Had chicken fingers and uh, mashed taters or smashed taters and gravy. I mean, a cornbread, but beans, oh, it was so good. Some of you licking your lips right now. I'll be done in a minute. Y'all can go home and eat. But the bottom line is, man, it was good food. And no sooner than, than uh, Grant woofed that thing down, he said, Bleh! I mean, sounded like a goat. I, I looked at him. His mama could have killed him. I thought, Lord, she is going to punch him right through this, this big picture frame memory, m- mirror or, or window. And he leaned back and said, man, that was good. And you know, you know that eye that moms give. I mean, I mean, she gave him that eye, and uh, and uh, uh, he said, "Well, he said that's a compliment in some cultures." And uh, I said, "Son, this is America. This isn't the culture where that's a compliment." So, anyways, my point in that is this: he behaved what we would consider rudely. The Bible says here that true love does not behave itself rudely. It behaves itself unseemly. It's mature in its manners. It's gracious. It's considerate towards others. Number two, it manifests itself in it that it seeks not her own. Selflessness, a heartfelt selflessness, according to verse number five, is at the heart of Christianity. Paul is speaking here of an intentional action that puts the success of others ahead of your own. Love is not preoccupied with its own things, but with the interest of others. Number three, he says it's not easily provoked. This heartfelt selflessness will manifest itself through a love that guards against being irritated or upset or aggravated by something someone says. I I think I said when I gave vision this year, I said, I promise you, somebody's going to get on your nerves this year in church. I said it. Somebody, so how do you know that? Because it happened at Corinth. It happened at Galatia. It happened at Ephesus. It happened at Philippi. You can't get a bunch of people together like this and somebody not get their feelings hurt. A couple of uh, years ago, I walked in the church and I I was shaking hands and time was ticking away. I mean, I had to get up here. And I'm shaking hands. I shook hands and I shook hands. And for for some reason, I got called away. Somebody spoke my name. I had a lot of prayer. And I turned around and I walked away to to get up here to preach. And I didn't shake one person's hand. And you know that person got so upset with me. Offended. Offended. Because I did not shake their hand. Listen, dear friend, it wasn't because I was trying to ignore that individual or hurt that individual. Man, I just had to get up here to preach. 
And so the bottom line is just simply this. Love is not easily provoked. It guards against that and say, well, the preacher, he loves me. He, he's just trying to get up there so he can, he can preach the word of God. Or, or there's a need. Somebody's in need. Uh, somebody needs something. Don't get so easily offended. Heartfelt selflessness. Number four, and then he says, it thinketh no evil. You see that there in verse five? It, notice it. I'd underline it. Why? Because this is another manifestation of heartfelt selflessness. Well, what does it mean, though? It means to not keep score. <clears throat> the Greek word here is a bookkeeping term, which means to calculate and put in the ledger. What he's saying here is love thinketh no evil. It does not keep a negative score, a, a negative as far as a negative balance. It gets rid of that. What love is, is a heartfelt selflessness. Where you care more about others than you care about yourself. Number three, let me show you verse six. There's a third thing here that we have. What love is. Love is humble contentment, heartfelt selflessness. Here's the third one Paul speaks to in verse six. Is honorable rejoicing. Honorable rejoicing. You see it in verse six. Notice what he says. It rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. He's simply saying that the fact of the matter is, what true love is, love, the gift of love, is rejoicing in true things. Paul is speaking about God's truth here, not about general truth, but God's truth. He says what true love is, is not rejoicing over something that's evil or something that's unrighteous, but rejoicing in something that's true. We did that today, just a few minutes ago. I, I spoke to the fact that we, we need to be praising and thanking God for our leaders there in Atlanta under the Gold Dome as they have passed this uh, of protection for children uh, from abortion. And thank God they're protecting life. Man, that, that is a biblical foundation. That's a biblical... The Bible talks about how God knew us before we were ever born. He understands that. And, and life begins at conception. And when somebody or, or some nation or the leaders of a nation when they move in that direction there ought to be an honorable rejoicing saying yes that's right that's biblical that's the way it should be number four again he's talking about what love is it's an honorable rejoicing it is a heartfelt selflessness it's a humble contentment but then number four in verse seven he says this it is honest relentlessness it's honest, relentless. Look at verse 7. Look at how he puts all this together. You'll notice each verse, he's putting a section together. He's putting contentment together, selflessness together, rejoicing together. And now he's going to put relentlessness together. Look how he does it. He is a very, very educated man that loves God with all of his heart, that's moved to the Holy Spirit of God to pen these words in verse 7. He says, love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things things four things he says the first one is just simply this love beareth all things he says there's this honest relentlessness in the arena of protecting others from exposure ridicule or harm it never protects sin but it is set on protecting the sinner to come to repentance that he says is true love he doesn't give up she doesn't give up on somebody that's lost man love never gives up so, man, I've been praying for this loved one for 15 years now. Oh, don't give up. Why? Because love beareth all things. Number two, he says it believes all things. That is, love is not suspicious or cynical. 
The love that we have for one another is a, is a harbor, if you would, of trust. And when that trust is broken, it desires healing and restoration. He says this is what love is. It believes all things. It believes that that person, though they might be not right with God at this stage, we are praying and believe that they're going to get right. Number three, he says love hopeth all things. Love always hopes. Always hopes. Love, if you have love, especially the, the gift of love, which only comes through salvation, then there's this hope that you have that cannot be described by anything else. I heard a story uh, of, a, of a dog that went to the airport every day. For five years, Jan, this dog would show up. They started asking around the community about this dog. And finally, one of the family members says, Oh, that dog belongs to my brother. And that dog goes to the airport every day and sits and waits for the master to come back. The master was away on deployment. And for five years, that dog would come every day and would sit all day long till evening, waiting for his master to come out that door. And every day when the, the master wouldn't come, the dog would leave. But would return every day. In fact, the, 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 the uh, uh, airport, they started feeding the dog. They felt sorry for the dog. He's just sitting there. And for five years, that dog never lost hope till his master came home and was the first to grieve. Now listen to this. If a dog's love for his master can produce that kind of hope, how much longer should our love make hope last? He says, love hopeth all things. And then notice he closes this section by saying, saying that love also endures all things. Here's the last manifestation of honest relentlessness. He says it endures all things. The, the term endure uh, is a military term. And it means to hold a position regardless of the cost to not be moved. He says here that love is one that holds the position when nobody else will hold the position, it endures to the very end. I heard a story about um, Abraham Lincoln when he was running for office. He had a man. He had a really cynical opponent uh, that really hated him. In fact, this opponent called him a gorilla. He said, "You don't need to go to a zoo to see a gorilla." He said, "You just come to just come to America and look at Abraham Lincoln. He looks just like a gorilla." And uh, after the election, when Lincoln won, he was studying his cabinet. He said, man, I've got to have somebody to be with the military. And he, without batting an eye, he said, I want that guy that called me a gorilla. That's the kind of man I want. And so they reached out to him, and the man agreed that he would sit on the cabinet, and he would be over the military. And he was there until Lincoln's death. And at Lincoln's death, they say the man walked up to the casket with tears running down his eyes, where at one time he called Abraham Lincoln a gorilla. He wept before his death and said, There lies the greatest leader I've ever seen in my life. What won that guy over? I'll tell you what won him over. What won him over was the enduring love that Abraham Lincoln had. He endured all the way to the end. You see, love bears what otherwise is unbearable. It believes what otherwise is unbelievable. It hopes in what otherwise is hopeless. And it endures 
when anything less than love would give up. Now I want you to notice there that in, verse, in this verse, when he says it beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and it ends there with endureth all things, notice there's nothing after endurance. Why? Well, there's nothing after endurance because endurance is the unending climax of love. We endure to the end. How long do you have to love me? Till the end. How long do I have to love you? Till the end. How long do you have to love that person you're sitting beside? Till the end. Turn that person beside you and say, I love you to the end. Turn that person on the other side and say, and you too. <clears throat> so, Paul, in his great wisdom and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, as the Spirit spoke to him, he said, here's what love is not. It's not a loud ruckus. It's not an attractive religion. It's not a humanitarian rationing. But here is what love is. It's humble contentment. It's heartfelt selflessness. It's honorable rejoicing. And it's honest relentlessness to the very end to love someone. And then he closes in verses 8 through 13 by doing this. Watch this. I love this part. He talks about what love does. What love does. And he says, love basically does four things. Follow with me very quickly before I'm out of time. Number one, the first thing he says is, love always conquers. Love always conquers. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says there in the text, love never fails. It always conquers. Always. And then he goes on to say, but where there be prophecies, they'll fail. Where there's tongues, they'll stop. And where there's knowledge, it will vanish away. He says, these gifts that you are highlighting and, and you are manifesting within yourself and drawing attention for self, he says, these things will pass away. They won't last forever. But love, love always conquers. Love is greater than prophecy. Love is greater than tongues. Love is greater, if you would, than, uh, than, than knowledge, if you will. It is greater than all of these things. Love will always conquer. You want to know how to win somebody that's ugly to you? Love them. Hey. You don't want to know how to overcome somebody that's rude to you? You just keep loving them. You want to know how to impact someone with such, with such the love of Jesus Christ to which they've never, ever, ever seen? You just keep loving them. Don't give up. Love always conquers. Look what it did in your life. Look at what love did in your life. Think about where you were before you got saved. Sammy, a dirty, rotten alcoholic, but God saved you from the pit of that. Why? Because he loved you. Love always conquers. Number two, I got to hurry. Man, I'd like to preach on that about 45 more minutes, but I can't. <clears throat> love always fulfills, verse 9 and 10. Love always fulfills, verse 9 and 10. Now, there's a phrase here that you need to get in verse 9 and 10. Look at what it says there. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but there's another conjunction. When that which is perfect is come. I would underline that. When that which is perfect is come. Because here's what you have to identify. What is he talking about? Because that leads to the other things that he's speaking of. What, what is the perfect thing that comes when that which is perfect is come? Uh, he's not referring to the completion of the Word of God. He's not referring to the completion of Scripture. Although the Bible says, the Bible says when the Bible was completed, we have a more sure word of prophecy. That's what the Scripture says. We can depend upon it. It is a more sure word 
of prophecy. It's greater, what the Bible's saying, it's greater than anybody that might say, I have a fresh rhema from God. This isn't in the Word, but this came directly from God. The Bible says, don't you dare believe that. This is a more sure word of prophecy, is what he says. Okay? So he's not talking about the completion of Scripture. He's not talking about the rapture of the church. It's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the maturing church, if you would, as we're growing and maturing and learning more about the Scriptures. He's not talking about that. He's not even talking about the second coming. Contextually, what he's talking about here is the eternal state. When the eternal state comes, that is, when a born-again child of God dies, when you die, he says, you will know. Because everything else will be done away with on this earth. And you'll be seeing Jesus face to face. And he's going to explain that more here in just a few minutes ago. But what he's saying is the only way that's fulfilled is through love. Because Jesus loved you, when you see Jesus face to face, it achieves that love, achieves this. Love always fulfills. What's the fulfillment of your eternity? Love. Number three, love always matures. Look at verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. What's he saying? Context is love. Love always matures. Because I loved Jesus Christ when I got saved, I got into the Word, I was discipled. I was discipled in Sunday school. I think that's a great place to be discipled. I was discipled in Sunday school. I learned that I needed to be baptized. I wish I could sit here and tell you that I got baptized the next week after I got saved. No, I was 14 years old. It took me three months to surrender for baptism. Why? Well, because I saw the preacher when he baptized his son. He said, son, I baptize you in the name of the Father. And he dunked him. And the Son, he dunked him again. And the Holy Spirit, and he dunked him again. And he held him down that third time and said, said, Lord, I'm going to keep him down here as long as it takes until I see bubbles before I bring him back up. I want this to be the real deal. And I saw his little feet start to kick in, and he brought him back up. I was friends with the, with the pastor's son. I said, I ain't doing that. <laughs> it scared me. <laughs> but then I grew up. I matured. I thought as a child. But then when I became more mature, I realized I needed to surrender for baptism. And the Bible is clear. What Paul is doing here is basically looking at the church at Corinth. He says, you bunch of babies. That's right. You're nothing but a bunch of immature babies. All you care about is your little toys. Somebody got your hot wheel and you're upset about it. And you say, that's mine. That's mine. And mine. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. And back and forth and back and forth. He says, no, love always matures. When I was a child, I thought as a child, quit thinking like a bunch of children, Paul says. It always matures. And then number four. It always reveals, verse 12. He says, uh, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. He's saying love always reveals. Love reveals the truth that this is not the end. We are one day going to see Jesus face to face. And in that eternal state, we will be like him. We will be known as we were known, but we'll be like him. Love will reveal the truth. And then in verse 13, he concludes. This is his concluding statement then. He says, And now abideth. Now, here's what's living today. Faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. He says, Church, 
there are three things, three virtues that you're exercising today. You have faith. Paul loved them. He loved the church at Corinth. He says, man, you got faith. You've believed on Jesus. Hope. If you didn't have any hope, what Paul's referring to is the fact that if they didn't have any hope, they'd have never asked him the questions. They, they want to grow up in their faith. Paul says, you got faith and you got hope and you got love. But here's the greatest thing. And you've got to focus on this more. You've got to focus on love. Because love is what sets in motion the plan of salvation. It's the love that God had for you, church. It's the love that God had for you that he included you in his great plan for eternity. He loves you. Now, Paul says just simply this, love each other. And this is what the greatest gift of all does. It causes us to love God and be committed to him more and to love each other. Let me just say this, and uh, we're going to pray and go to Sunday school. Maybe you're here today, and maybe, maybe, Two people are here. Number one, they're Christians and they're non-Christians. If you're here and you're a Christian and you're struggling with loving the unlovable, then why don't you recognize that as being a sin? And quit acting like a child. Ask God to forgive you and start loving. Start demonstrating what love is. These five beautiful illustrations here. Or maybe you're here today and maybe you don't know the true love of Jesus. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 13, These things have I written unto you that believeth on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The Bible says that the greatest thing you can have is your salvation. And you can know that you're going to heaven when you die. Why? Because God loved you. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So here's what I'd like for you to do today. I'd like for you to trust Jesus as Savior. That's what I'd like for you to do. Would you do that? So how might I do that? Could we stand as we pray? So we stand today. Maybe you'd like to pray and ask Jesus to save you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you'd like to be saved today, from your heart to God's heart, I'm going to ask you to do this. Number one, recognize you're a sinner. Recognize you're a sinner. You cannot save yourself. Number two, the second thing I'm going to ask you to do is confess your sins. And the third thing I'm going to ask you to do is to believe on Jesus. So how do I do that? From your heart to God's heart, why don't you say something like this right where you're at? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. This morning I repent of my sin. And I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I will live for you. In Jesus' name.